Hello, I'm Mary Worden, and this is Premier Health Now on Air, COVID-19 edition, a Premier Health podcast. This is the week of January 11th, 2021. Hey there, happy new year. If you're listening to this, then we made it. We survived 2020. I think it's a fair assumption that we all learned not to put too much pressure on the year to come by saying it's going to be the best year ever and we're going to do all the things. I heard a lot of that talk going on as we were approaching 2020, but not so much this year. And that's okay. But did you make any New Year's resolutions? To be completely honest, the holidays and then the end of the year snuck up on me so quickly that, quite frankly, I didn't even think about New Year's resolutions until we were already a few days into January. And it felt weird to make any big resolutions this year. So I decided to focus on what I've been reading and learning about, and that is called the micro goal. You can set a new micro goal anytime. It's something small and attainable that helps you prioritize and stay organized, and instead of setting any big hairy goal that could be long term, the micro goals are like baby steps towards the end goal. And since I'm still lucky enough to be working safely from home, my micro goals are all about taking small steps to get my insert air quotes here routine in check. And yes, there are air quotes around that because my routine is garbage right now. So even though it was after the new year, I listed out a few small things I wanted to start out with for my micro goals. And it consisted of fairly common things like drinking more water, trying to unplug more, getting my exercise routine in order, getting on a better sleep schedule, and setting aside a little more time for self-care. All little attainable steps to being a better version of myself without putting too much pressure on myself or on 2021. And even though I'm trying to unplug more, I turned to my phone to look for apps to help me easily manage some of my micro goals. And there's an app for everything. I downloaded a few and most were free, but a couple of them offered a free seven day trial. And I like free stuff. I'm not gonna call out which app this was, but there was one free trial that I was really excited about. I really wanted to test out this app. But then when I got into that free trial, I was so glad I didn't purchase it because truthfully, it was not good. It wasn't what I expected from the app and it wasn't user-friendly. So I promptly emailed customer service, canceled the subscription and said, thank you so much. Is this not how the beginning of 2021 felt to anyone else? It was a crazy start to a new year in our world. I wanted to email customer service for 2021 and cancel my free trial and subscription to that and just hop on over to 2022 immediately. Unfortunately, that's not an option. And even though I didn't set super high expectations for 2021, I definitely was hoping for a blank slate and a fresh start in this new year. All early January craziness aside, there's one pretty big thing that is offering us a glimmer of hope for a better year. And that is, there are vaccines now available to help us combat COVID-19. It's not available for everyone just yet, but it will be. 
Vaccines can be scary for some people, and as far as vaccines go, this one was created in a very short time frame. And with that, there are a lot of questions and a whole lot of concerns around this vaccine. Is it safe? Do I have to get it more than once? Can I stop wearing a mask if I get the vaccine? To help us answer these questions and more, we're joined again by emergency physician and the medical director for Premier Health EMS Center of Excellence, Dr. Randy Marriott. Hey, Dr. Marriott, I know this has been an extremely challenging year, physically, mentally, emotionally. What was the most challenging thing that you've experienced and dealt with over the last year? I think the information overload is probably what comes to my mind. Um, There has been so much information and uh, unfortunately a lot of changing information, but that's just the nature of 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 a novel virus. Uh, causing a pandemic. Uh, we won't have a good uh, knowledge base uh, for weeks to months, and that's still changing. So I would say keeping up with the uh, with the onslaught of information has probably been the most, the most challenging. And uh, trying to provide accurate information uh, to uh, the constituencies that I, that, that I serve, mainly EMS and emergency physicians, trying to give them uh, the most up-to-date inf- information uh, then trying to modify that information as evidence changes, uh, that's that's difficult. It's difficult for the person trying to disseminate uh, the information, and it's it's just as difficult for those trying to take it in. Um, so it's uh, I think, uh, particularly in our technological uh, age, uh, information overload is 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 very easy uh, to uh, to have o- overwhelm you. So I, I that's my first response. Uh, you you want to be accurate and uh, and and it's uh, it's difficult to know from day to day whether whether you you might be uh, a little bit behind in one area. I've started to see people become more and more comfortable with talking about having COVID on their social media platforms. I've been seeing a lot of people creating survival kits in case they get COVID and a list of what those kits have inside them. They're also giving advice on what you should be taking while you're recovering at home. Some of the more common things I'm seeing are supplements like zinc and vitamin B. As the expert, what do you think about these types of at-home kits? Well, fortunately, I don't think uh, many of the supplements have really good evidence. Uh, Vitamin D is uh, recommended if you are deficient in vitamin D, but if you don't particularly know that, or you're not deficient, I'm not sure that it's it's helping you a great deal. Uh, melatonin is another one that you uh, hear uh, you know, bantied about. And I think as far as maintaining your, your sleep cycle while you're ill, that's probably uh, helpful. Again, is it going to improve your recovery or speed your recovery? No. Um, is it going to provide some comfort while you're ill? Potentially. So I, I don't think any of the supplements that I've seen uh, talked about are uh, necessarily harmful as long as you don't exceed recommended dosing. Whether it's going to give you much benefit or not, that's another story. Another item for the kit that I've heard a lot of people talk about is an oximeter, the little thing that clips on a fingertip to help test your oxygen levels. Is this something useful? And if it is, what should your oxygen levels be at? Sure, sure. I will tell you that that actually is, I think, a decent uh, thought a good idea and uh, actually has been adopted by healthcare systems uh, where they actually will give someone a small pulse, pulse oximeter uh, before they leave 
the emergency department or before they leave the hospital with instructions on watching their oxygen saturation. If it falls below 90, certainly that is a um, a sign of, of, of trouble. That's where we will intervene with oxygen for sure. We'd like that number to be a little higher. We'd like it to be upper closer to 92 or, or higher, but definitely below 90, we start to uh, start to become very concerned and we would not release you from the hospital with a pulse oximetry reading below 90, uh, not without arranging for home oxygen if you were a, an inpatient. Of course, that's difficult to do from the emergency department. Now, the strategy is you have this uh, home pulse ox monitor, you keep an eye on your actual numbers, and if uh, if they're trending downward, then, then you contact your doctor, you return to the emergency department, uh, you take whatever action you've been instructed to take. And I think it has some significant benefit provided the pulse oximeter is of sufficient quality to give you an accurate reading. And that I think is in question with some of them. Uh, that technology has become uh, fairly inexpensive. But unfortunately, uh, during any crisis, you have people selling things that maybe don't necessarily make the grade. Uh, these are not healthcare grade pulse oximeters in most cases, the ones that they're, uh, that they're, they're buying online. And um, it doesn't mean they're 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 not helpful. Doesn't mean they will not give you uh, an accurate reading. Uh, but sometimes it's uh, it's it's questionable. I have heard some uh, reports of pulse oximeters that that were giving bad readings, falsely high, uh, which is where you certainly have uh, have uh, the most danger. If it's giving you a higher number than you than actually uh, is occurring in your body. Uh, that that's that's very very dangerous. But I've heard some stories with them also reading uh, too low, and then they get to the hospital and realize that that number was in was in in error. So I guess I'll 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 throw out the caveat: provided you have a properly functioning um, pulse oximeter of sufficient quality to give you a, uh, a a fairly accurate reading, I think it's a great idea. And to wrap up thoughts around an at-home COVID kit. What would you tell a patient who does not have a critical case and who is at home to do for optimal recovery? Well, the, the typical rest, uh, stay hydrated, uh, control fever. Uh, those are some of your most important steps. Controlling fever not only makes you more comfortable, puts less stress on your cardiovascular system, causes less uh, loss of fluid. Uh, people lose uh, uh, moisture through heat and through uh, heat leaving their body. That's what we call insensible loss. Uh, when you have a higher temperature, you breathe a little faster, which means you're exhaling moisture, uh, and you're also having moisture evaporate from your skin as well. Uh, so fever control, uh, maintaining hydration, I think those are, are, are very important steps, and uh, trying to the best uh, of your ability to maintain a, a good sleep-wake cycle. It's where the melatonin might might help, but the rest is important as well. Dr. Marriott, let's shift gears and talk about what is in everyone's news feeds and on everyone's minds, the vaccine. To start, I'm curious, have you gotten your vaccine yet? I have. Uh, it was very public. <laughs> I was at the uh, convention center at the uh, Public Health of Dayton and Montgomery County's uh, POD, which stands for Point of Dispensing. And um, so I was uh, vaccinated by a Dayton paramedic on camera, and um, it was uh, a very surreal experience. Uh, it was an emotional experience, honestly. Uh, and uh, 
I uh, I'm very glad that I did it. It was on Christmas Eve and it was my first opportunity. Uh, so uh, if that tells you anything about my position, the fact that I I was uh, counting down the hours to be able to get that vaccine and, and did it at the very earliest possibility. Uh, that's how excited I was to, to be able to receive it. What a nice Christmas gift. And you said it was an emotional experience. What kind of emotions were you feeling? Well, I, I, I never dreamed we would have it that soon. And uh, I felt like, you know, that I've, I've, I've made it at least to this point. I've not gotten sick myself. Um, I now have an opportunity to continue to work and continue to, uh, to treat COVID patients and uh, maybe do so somewhat more safely. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's always that thought in the back of your mind, is this the day that I get sick? Or uh, is, this, uh, is this the time when one of us ends up being hospitalized? We've had probably about 25 to 30 percent, maybe more now, of our emergency providers uh, in Premier Health that have been infected. Uh, that's not something that, that we talk about a great deal, but um, the fact is that it is a significant danger to, to us. Um, and the fact that I could receive at least the beginning of some protection and have it happen so, so quickly um, uh, compared to what was predicted, uh, it, was, it was just a, uh, a very, very good day for me. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. With the vaccine being so new and something that became available so quickly, there are lots of questions. When we come back, I'm going to ask Dr. Marriott questions that came straight from you, our listeners, about the vaccine. Stay with us. We know getting care comes with a little uncertainty right now. But behind these masks, you'll find unwavering dedication, compassion, and protection for you and the care we provide to you. You won't find us backing down. We won't stop. As long as you need us, we'll be here standing strong because it's who we are and care is behind everything we do. Our care lives here. Premier Health. And we're back. Okay, Dr. Marriott, let's take a few questions straight from our listeners about the vaccine. Here we go. The vaccine was developed too quickly. Is it safe? I think it's probably gone through the same uh, degree of scrutiny that other vaccines have have, uh, have gone uh, through, except just on a very uh, uh, accelerated timetable. I don't uh, believe that uh, significant corners have been cut. I think it was the volume of people working on the vaccine, uh, the number of man hours uh, compressed into several months. Um, and, and I understand that in terms of clinical trials, it doesn't give you as much time to assess uh, for the uh, short-term and intermediate effects, and certainly gives you very little information about long-term effects. Uh, that I understand. And what I typically explain is, in part, what I've said a, a, a few seconds ago, and that is that we don't know the ramifications of having COVID-19 on your long-term health. And if, uh, if I'm going to take a risk one way or another, I felt the risk-benefit certainly swung toward taking the vaccine, even though we don't know everything there is to know about it. In uh, a choice between two unknowns, uh, and there's unknowns on both sides of the equation, um, I chose to, uh, 
I chose to take on the unknowns of, of the vaccine because I feel the technology is sound, the process has, has been sound, and the likelihood of it causing long-term effects is is much less than uh, being infected with the with with the virus uh, through natural disease. Do we know how long immunity will last, or will I have to get the vaccine every year like the flu shot? Um, I think it's entirely likely, entirely probable that we're going to need uh, to have uh, additional uh, COVID uh, vaccine uh, administered to us if we're going to maintain immunity. Um, The interval necessary, I I have no idea. Would it be annual? Will it be every so many years? That's hard to say. Uh, We really have no immunizations right now that confer truly lifelong immunity. Uh, And the recommendations change from time to time on how often you should have what vaccine and when you should have boosters, et cetera. Um, you know, we get tetanus shots every 10 years. We accept that. Um, and I think this is probably going to fall into that same pattern. Again, the interval, I don't know. Uh, could it be annual? I, I guess that is is still possible. Uh, I think it really depends on how this virus mutates in the future and uh, what the prevalence of disease is from year to year. So I I think there's still some unknowns, but I'm fully expecting to have to be immunized once again. And Dr. Marriott, to follow up on that listener question, when a little more time passes and we do have more data, how is the frequency determined? Well, I think it'll be a combination of assessing for antibody level within those that have received the vaccine, uh, combined with uh, the genetics of the virus itself uh, and uh, how they feel that the, the current circulating form or wild type of virus, how that will respond to the vaccine you know, or respond to the antibody that we have in our bodies that have been induced by the vaccine. Um, so it's going to be a combination of, of, of those two uh, assessments. Do we have enough antibody? Uh, so many months or years out still in our bodies? And do we believe that that antibody in our bodies will be effective against the current form of the virus in circulation? And another listener question, does the vaccine prevent you from getting COVID or is it similar to the flu shot where you could still catch the flu, but you have lessened symptoms? Well, I would say the answer to that is both. Uh, We don't know uh, all the answers quite yet to, to this. What it does is it it actually it actually induces your body to produce antibody to COVID, and so you're receiving a strand of what's called messenger RNA, which goes into your cells, and the code in that messenger RNA uh, is instructing your cells to produce the antibody to the COVID virus. Um, so. It's still possible to get ill with COVID, but likely with a much uh, reduced uh, uh, illness and significantly fewer symptoms, Uh, almost to the point maybe in some cases where the disease is is asymptomatic. Um, And that brings about another question is, even though you've been vaccinated, can you still harbor the virus and can you still shed the virus? And I think right now uh, we believe the answer is 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 yes. So even people who have been vaccinated, it may be necessary for them to wear a mask uh, in the next several months, if not longer, as long as that recommendation for wearing a mask uh, is still in force. 
so it's not a get out of mask free card. Um, so that's that's that is best answer I can give you at this point. Um, many people will not express disease at, at all if they're exposed to the virus. Uh, some might have mild disease, a much reduced form after being vaccinated. But we still don't know whether we will shed the virus into what degree we'll shed the virus. In other words, could we be contagious even though we've been vaccinated and not expressing the disease? And the answer is, I think that may be possible. So if you've had one or both of the series of shots for the vaccine, you're not fully protected. Is that correct? No, 94 and 95 percent range based on which one you got. They're essentially identical. The Pfizer versus the Moderna. Would the vaccine help someone in ICU or with a very critical case who already has COVID? I think right now uh, the answer is is no. Uh, the better option is, uh, I think, to use um, other medications that may directly impact the viral load like remdesivir, although uh, the results with remdesivir are, are somewhat mixed. Uh, people who have had recent COVID infections who receive the vaccine um, can have more side effect to the vaccine. Uh, it's not contraindicated. In fact, it's still recommended that people who have had COVID uh, have the vaccine. We're recommending that they wait about 90 days. Uh, that helps to reduce uh, the, uh, the more exaggerated response to the vaccine. It also gives those who haven't had the disease, who don't have natural antibody, gives them a chance to uh, be head of the line to, to get the vaccine as well. Uh, but no, there there is no recommendation to give the vaccine to someone who's currently infected. Uh, I think you would be asking for uh, for a fairly significant amount of uh, of side effect. And those that are in the ICU that have been there for um, a week, two weeks, three three weeks, uh, they've already developed uh, antibody uh, just from having the disease itself. So giving an additional vaccine uh, probably would not be helpful because again, it would take ten days. Uh, after the vaccine was administered for them to even get up to 50% or more effectiveness. Um, so they're already too far down the road. They've already produced their own ant antibody. They could have a more exaggerated reaction. And it's going to take uh, a, you know, weeks for them to, uh, to get a, a, an antibody level from the vaccine if they didn't already have their, their own. So yeah, I don't see a role for that with uh, people currently in the ICU. Uh, many of the people that languish in the ICU, it's because of the immune response uh, to the vaccine that has caused a number of issues, particularly with their lungs. Uh, so it's it's not so much an issue at that point of infection as it is the results of uh, the, the immune response to the virus. And now we, we have mon monoclonal antibodies that we're administering in the infusion centers. And uh, however, they have been restricted to those who are not hospitalized, who don't have an oxygen requirement. They've been studied on an outpatient basis. Uh, we do have convalescent plasma, which is a similar concept. It's taking plasma from people who have had the disease, who have antibody in their system, and then uh, giving that to uh, people who are very ill uh, from, from COVID. Uh, we're, we're, we're still doing that. That also has had some mixed re re response and mixed results. But uh, yeah, there are other ways of, of getting uh, antibody to people that are, that are very ill. 
And, and again, as I've said, if they've been there for a week or two, they've already produced uh, some of their own antibodies. So it really is is more of an issue of dealing with the side effects than it is uh, the virus itself. Is it possible to have an allergic reaction or experience negative side effects when getting the vaccine? The initial information from uh, Zone 3, which is uh, a third of the state of Ohio, uh, it's the Cincinnati-Dayton area, um, they've divided the state into three zones uh, in terms of trying to manage hospital resources and so forth. And the zone three results uh, of the uh, vaccine uh, side effects have been very good. Uh, there have been, been many uh, fewer reported side effects than what uh, the actual clinical trials showed. Um, they're very, very <laughs> vigilant during a clinical trial and, and they will they will mark down everything uh, that a patient experiences and a patients will keep symptom diaries and every little every little uh, uh, variation in, in, in their in how they feel from day to day is being recorded. Um, I'll tell you a, a, a funny story about that and that is that uh, in, I believe it was one of the one of the trials in, in, in Europe, um, they recorded a death in the placebo arm. Anyone who has any health issues in either the placebo arm or the vaccine arm, um, that's recorded. And I think there was someone who might have been in the vaccine arm who died. And of course, that that, that was reported as a death in the in the uh, in the vaccine arm of the study. But they died by being struck by lightning. But that was still recorded <laughs> in the data. Uh, so it, it doesn't matter what the cause of symptoms are, they get recorded because everyone's being very cautious. But the initial information that I'm hearing, uh, and it's anecdotal, coming out of zone three is that the side effect rate has been very low and much lower than that reported in the clinical trials. I have heard of no significant neurological issues. That's certainly one that we watch for. Very, very carefully, uh, something called Guillain-Barre syndrome is is one of the more more feared reactions. Um, have not heard of this occurring. Um, now, as far as allergic reactions are concerned, uh, one of the first things to keep in mind is that people will often confuse side effects and allergy. Two different two different issues. And an allergy is a true immune response of your body to a foreign material introduced into your body. Um, so that happens much more rarely than side effects. An example would be the whole issue of people passing out. And there was a case where a, uh, I believe it was a nurse that was, was vaccinated and then passed out. That's not an allergic reaction, not even close. That's a vasovagal reaction to the injection it's, itself. Some people uh, have exaggerated responses to needle sticks, to painful stimuli, to noxious stimuli. It causes their blood vessels to dilate, their heart uh, to, to uh, temporarily slow, and it drops their blood pressure abruptly. And if you don't have enough blood pressure, you don't get blood to the brain. And if the brain is not being bathed in blood, uh, you pass out. It has nothing to do with allergy, and it has nothing to do with the content of the vaccine. It has to do with the fact you've been stuck with a needle and you your body didn't like it. Um, so. Again, those are not allergies. And as now, again, going into what is a true allergy, uh, is there been uh, what we call anaphylaxis, where you start getting swelling in your throat and, uh, 
and swelling of the face, difficulty breathing, wheezing, hives, uh, any number of, of symptoms along those lines. Uh, been very, very few of those those cases. And, and that's something that we see occur with the administration of any medication. Again, any foreign material being introduced into your body can trigger that type of response, including certain foods. Um, and some people are more prone to this. So people that have a history of severe allergic reactions have been asked to to kind of uh, abstain from taking the vaccine in this first round until there's better information. But again, uh, I believe of the thousands of people that have been immunized in this part of Ohio, I, I, I've heard of only one or two uh, allergic reactions that required immediate treatment. And those people did fine, uh, as far as I'm aware. And again, every time you set up a pod or a point of dispensing, uh, where the where the uh, the vaccines being given to uh, hundreds of people in a in, in a day, they have all the necessary equipment on site to treat an allergic rate reaction. And, uh, and of course, when you're in a place like the Dayton Convention Center, uh, they they had uh, a medic unit on standby. They had a number of fire department personnel there. Uh, they were more than prepared to deal with any type of, of allergic reaction. Is there anyone who should not get the vaccine? Well, uh, the vaccines are approved, I believe, for 16 up and 18 and up. Pfizer or Moderna, either one uh, is at 16 and then the other one is at 18 and, and above. So um, so obviously people that are younger than that uh, will not be getting it initially. Uh, there are a There is a somewhat... Uh, lengthy list of people they recommend uh, abstain from the vaccine. And uh, a lot of it involves people with, uh, with pre-existing conditions, some immunocompromise, and uh, also some uh, uh, issues pertaining to previous allergic reactions, like we mentioned before. Uh, it's not a, not a huge list. Uh, and uh, for the most part, uh, people can receive the, the, the vaccine. Uh, it's felt to be safe for pregnant women pregnant and breastfeeding women. Uh, in fact, it's recommended for pregnant women. My, my, my daughter, who happens to be about 34 weeks pregnant, is, uh, is due to get it, uh, I believe, this week. Uh, she uh, is in the dental field, so they're offering it uh, uh, to dental personnel in the Columbus area. So uh, she intends to, to take it, and it's fully endorsed by, by her uh, obstetrician. Dr. Marriott, thank you for answering questions straight from our listeners. As always, what is one last thing you'd like to leave our listeners with for this week? You know, there's 184 people as of 9 a.m. today on our high-risk respiratory unit at the main campus. 184 people. And that's that's spread over nearly four, uh, no, not four, six floors of our southeast uh, addition, the, the heart and vascular tower, you know, which is what I think a 13, 14 floor building. Six entire floors now are dedicated to COVID. Um, so when you put that in perspective, when you when you think about when has there ever been a single disease that has consumed six floors of a hospital, uh, the answer is you can't think of one. Um, even polio, I don't know uh, if that caused this kind of uh, this kind of ad- admission rate. We uh, just and this is just a Miami Valley system alone. This is not. Uh, including atrium and upper valley let's see yesterday 28 people went to the hrru in 24 hours so 
And that's been the pattern for the last few weeks where we've been admitting at least one person an hour to the hospital in the Miami Valley network with COVID. And so, again, put that in perspective. What disease can, can you name that puts a person in the hospital one per hour for weeks at a time? Nothing. So, so the, the naysayers that, that believe this is uh, not real, that that we're exaggerating the numbers, that we're doing it simply to make money for the hospitals and all the other ridiculous conspiracy theories you hear put out there. Uh, it's just, it, it's mind boggling, very demoralizing. Uh, when you go in every day and you're under the gun and then you have people getting on, on social media and, and, and uh, saying that what you're facing is not real, uh, it's, uh, it, it, it very, it's, it's, it's maddening um, and then there's the other people that say they support us, but then won't bother to wear a mask. Uh, if, if you want to support me, wear a mask. Thank you for sharing some of those numbers with us. When you think about one patient per hour, that is very scary. And we've not reached the peak yet. That's going to be in a few weeks. Now it's a little bit more than one per hour. And I'm af- I am very afraid that if you and I talked again in a month, I'd be telling you it's two an hour or even more. So we'll we'll see where that 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 goes, but I think that is that is possible, and and likely probable. Thank you so much, Dr. Marriott. All right, it was good talking to you again. If you made resolutions for 2021, that's great, and if you didn't, that's great too. Here are a few things we can all do in this new year. Don't compare things with last year's experiences. We're allowed to be disappointed, but try not to dwell on how awful 2020 was. Remember that hope is a beautiful and magical thing. If circumstances have changed you, make sure that changes for the better. And don't forget to be thankful for another year. Yes, even this one. You can get more information 24-7 at premierhealth.com COVID-19. This has been Premier Health Now On Air, COVID-19 edition, a Premier Health podcast. Our care lives here.